Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alex Batesmith. Today, I'm delighted that we'll be talking to Jacqueline Kingen about her recent book, Lawyers, Networks, and Progressive Social Change, Lawyers Changing Lives. Jackie is a professor in social change legal education in the School of Law at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Her teaching and research explores the legal profession and legal professional identity and values of social justice lawyers, focusing on access to justice, legal education and social movements. She's also a qualified barrister with a background in social welfare, equality and human rights law. Jackie, welcome to New Books in Law. Hi, Alex. Now, Jackie, I've given you a very brief bio, but I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little more about your journey into law. What was your journey as a practitioner and then becoming an academic? Yeah, of course. So um, like you said, and like you, Alex, I'm a barrister by training. Um, and I suppose after a couple of years in practice and some time working as a judicial assistant, which is like a clerk um, in the US, uh, I, I moved into academia and I work, you know, mostly in clinical legal education. I've spent most of my career recreating the clinical experience that I had in the US and Canada for students here in the UK. And it was that experience of teaching that led me to ask lots of questions that I seek to address in my research now and that I uh, seek to address in this book which is basically, you know, why is lawyers pursuing social change and working in the field of social justice? Why do we do what we do the way we do it? And what might the consequences of that be, whether, you know, positive consequences, but also in some of my work, I look at even the, the negative or unintended consequences of using the law to pursue social change. Um, but if I'm honest, a real reason for doing this study and writing this book was my students. I became a bit frustrated that every day I was teaching the really brilliant scholarship on cause lawyering and legal mobilisation, as it's known. So how do social movements and communities mobilise the law to achieve their goals? You know, all of that literature mostly comes from the US um, and elsewhere. But but here in the UK, we we haven't or we hadn't at least found to my mind, a theoretical or a sociological space to really interrogate those theories in a UK context. And I suppose for my students, I wanted to introduce them to that. And I wanted to help them to be able to ask, well, what type of lawyer can I be here in this jurisdiction? What type of work can I do? What motivates me? And to use that to really um, critically inform uh, their own career choices for the future. So you saw effectively a gap in the market that cause lawyering. A gap in the market. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> in, in a way, funny. so so cause lawyering is, uh, as we know, uh, very popular, and uh, it's an ideal that is uh, has been written about a great deal in the US, but not so much in the UK. Um, and, and on that particular issue, getting into your book to begin with, before we get into any more detail, you've chosen the title "Progressive Lawyers." Um, Tell us a bit about what you mean by that expression. Yes, yeah. So progressive lawyers, I purposefully chose to try and capture a broad movement of lawyers on the left. Um, Richard Abel had done some work quite a while ago now in the 1980s where he seeks to define what is um, a very broad field of activity. And that's because these lawyers are... Um, 
occupy different spaces, um, you know, largely on the left. You know, on the one hand, there are some lawyers in the study that would self-identify as communists, as, um, you know, being on the far left, and others more perhaps on the centre left. So it's it's not even a term that I seek to um, to mean exclusively to be exclusively political, but rather to encompass wide-ranging activities of different types, but nonetheless with shared goals in terms of shared left, broad, progressive values. And as you set out in your introduction, you're particularly interested in the identity of these progressive lawyers. What draws you to identity as a concept and why do you think it's important in, um, in the field of study that you're looking at? Yeah, so, you know, there's a few, I think there's a few ways to answer that. And the first perhaps does come back to this question of maybe a sense of frustration that other studies, to my mind, had neglected the um, the importance of identity in thinking about what lawyers do. Um, and that's because, you know, a lot of the access to justice and empirical access to justice work that I was exposed to early in my career and that I, you know, I still in much of my work sit within, it, there's... There's a real disconnect for me between saying, well, this is what a lawyer does. They, they, a client comes along or a group, a community, a movement of people, you know, they have an outcome they want to achieve. They use a particular type of legal intervention. And then we measure the impact of that in this intervention. We can say or try to say whether it's a success or a failure. But for me, it's not a simple question. And certainly as a lawyer and in, you know, being immersed in the use of law in this way, I could see that it wasn't as simple as that, that it wasn't just that you you always know what tool to pull out of your box, that you always know what the intervention's go- going to be. For me, there were social, political, cultural, but also identity-driven reasons for why we might say this tool at this time for this purpose. And so to bet, to understand the impact, to understand you know, what lawyers are doing and, and, and whether they're achieving it or not, I think we also have to look at their own identity, their professional identity, but also their personal identity and how those two things interact. Great. We'll come back to that a little later on, I think. Um, As far as progressive lawyers are concerned, you mentioned how they engage from very early on this uh, concept um, of social identification. Uh, And you talk about processes of social identification. I wonder if you could explain that a bit. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, actually, when I'm thinking and um, discussing social identification, you know, a lot of that is in that the basic sociological urban government sense of how do we present ourselves? What is it about our presentation of self and how we construct and understand who we are? But also because this is a narrative study, you know, how do we present that as a story to one another? Um, but how does that social identification present itself, not just ind- individually, but collectively? So what what are the shared ways in which we socially identify with one another to, to, to do our work day to day? So, I, you know, I think in some ways, although I rely on Mario Diani's um, you know, network conception of a social movement in this study, it relates in some ways to the sociological work on in-group, out-group status. You know, are you within, do you identify as being within or out with certain groups? And, you know, as we'll maybe come to, what, what I find for these lawyers is a very strong identification with lawyers 
like them, with other lawyers, regardless of the tools you're using or the type of work you're doing, you're you're pursuing social justice, you're pursuing change and in particular access to justice for vulnerable and excluded groups. And that can be clearly distinguished from other lawyers, other lawyers whose social identification obviously rests perhaps in the corporate sphere or with using alternative tools for alternative means. I think we will definitely come back to that later on in the conversation. I think before we go any further, it'd be good to perhaps set the context of progressive lawyering, uh, which in the UK at least has been um, the development of legal aid from the 1940s onwards uh, and its erosion, uh, gradual and, and more more rapid from the 1990s onwards. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that history, given that, that many of our listeners will be in the United States. What do you mean by this context and within which progressive lawyering operates here in the UK? Yeah, so, and I think the starting point, you know, is to say that in many ways, the the underpinnings of that context and the early, you know, what we call here our law centre movement, the early stages of that was, you know, were very much, they grew from seeds planted from the US example of the neighbourhood law centre movement. And indeed, the individuals that went to the US to, to, to look at those neighbourhood law centres came back to the UK and established them, the first one being in, in North Kensington in London in the very early 1970s. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that context for progressive lawyering here, I think, though, has to be distinguished from elsewhere because of our own unique systems of legal aid, which is a judicare model, um, mostly. There are some other sort of public defender services and grant making um, you know, local authority government grants within that, but largely a judicare model of legal aid and, you know, a, a, a system that developed with lawyers working in law firms then to provide legal aid services with government funding, as well as these law centres emerging in different areas across the UK and in different ways, often depending on where they emerged. Um, and then after a period of growth and, you know, what some call the golden era um, through the 80s and 90s, where, you know, essentially most people who needed advice and representation could perhaps get it across different areas of civil legal aid and criminal justice in particular. But then over over many years and a lot of political reasons for this as well, we saw the, the curbing of that spending and a lot of structural changes to legal aid. So, new, you know, public management, contracting. And so the, the, the context changed very much over the five decades of this study. The, the first lawyer in the study had qualified in 1968 and the last was due to, to qualify in 2018. And we see that change over those five decades. But then in terms of the context of the study itself, what, you know, even though I'm delving into these stories over the last five decades, they can't be divorced from the time in which the study is conducted. And that was 2015. Um, in fact, the time period itself was an impetus for the study because the impacts of the last big changes in England, Wales, in England and Wales in particular that that took a lot of legal aid funding away from certain areas of law, um, you know what we had really emerging at that time and still do was an access to justice crisis, and um, during that crisis, a lot of lawyers in fact started to leave the profession. Many of them were retiring, you know, the, the, the sort of what I would consider some of the leading lights of the movement in the 70s were beginning to retire. And so in many ways, the context was to try and capture their stories at a time when, you know, we were at risk of losing them. 
but also what I describe is this master narrative against which all other stories are told. And that master narrative is the sort of sense of crisis about legal aid and crisis about access to justice and an urgency, you know, honestly, in a, in a meta level, that, that urgency that I had about capturing these stories is an urgency about the context itself and about, you know, how do we ensure that the most disadvantaged and vulnerable individuals in society are getting the legal services and the access to the justice they deserve, given all these constraints and challenges in the landscape. Uh, absolutely. I think that, that crisis can also be seen in parallel to some of the other challenges and um, up to date that we're talking about now, the threats to social welfare, the threats to the Human Rights Act 1998 in the UK. How do you think that has also, those aspects have also influenced progressive lawyering in the in the last decade? Yeah, absolutely. So that hostility to rights talk, you know, is prevalent at so many different levels, you know, and when I started this study, we, you know, I think the the Conservative government had alluded in a manifesto that they were, you know, they may abolish the Human Rights Act, but really in the fieldwork for this study, that wasn't, you know, wasn't as prevalent as what it has been. Obviously, we've seen even some changes in relation to that. But you know, absolutely. I think as I was writing up the study and as the book was being published, this culture of um, sort of contestation around activist lawyering in particular was was really heightened. And as you know, and as many other of our, of our listeners know, that often in the field of immigration, that is is most extreme. That this idea of well, why do immigrants and asylum seekers deserve publicly funded legal advice? And as a step on from that, a conclusion, well, they don't. And then seeing a hostility towards the lawyers that provide that advice. Um, and even here in the UK, there's been some issues in relation to the safety of those lawyers because of how that has played out in the public sphere. Um, so, you know, what does that mean for lawyers working in this space? Well, uh, you know, Hilary Summerlad and others have looked for many years at that disconnect between how a lawyer's work is perceived publicly and how they perceive themselves and how, where it's perceived negatively, it can really impact on one's own sort of self-esteem, one's, pub, one's own perception of oneself and can lead to burnout and, you know, a lot of negative consequences. And certainly in this study, what I would have heard and still do in my work a lot is, you know, but, but this work is val- valuable. You know, these services need to be provided yet and yet and yet, you know, unlike perhaps how we view doctors and other public servants, um, legal aid lawyers simply and, and social justice lawyers simply aren't perceived in the same positive way. And the, the negative political space in relation to human rights in particular has exacerbated that. The only other comment I would make in relation to that, though, Alex, is that I think it's really important in the UK to differentiate the experience in England and Wales from from Scotland and, and Northern Ireland, and indeed from Wales, actually. We, because England and Wales here is one jurisdiction, we tend to bundle them together, but actually we have these devolved nations where socially, politically, culturally, developments 
can diverge and, um, and we fail to capture them. So just, you know, by way of one example, um, you know, I'm based in Scotland now and we're, um, you know, the, the Scottish government is attempting to incorporate the UN Conventions on the Rights of the Child um, and, and several other international human rights treaties. So we see a very different context for human rights here as what we would see in, in the, juris- the legal jurisdiction that is England and Wales. We'll certainly talk at the very end about the future of progressive lawyering and how progressive lawyers deal with those challenges that you've met. But I, I wanted to sort of zoom out a bit and and ask about the, this issue of motivation. And for me, at least, I think we can distinguish progressive or cause lawyers from what might be styled conventional or client lawyers by looking at their particular motivations, what drives them to to undertake progressive lawyering. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how lawyer motivation is central to the book and the study that you've undertaken. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that we can distinguish those those motivations and that one of the things that characterises progressive lawyers and lawyers in this study is the extent to which their own presentation of self is to differentiate those motivations. You know, I am I am not that lawyer. I'm not the other lawyer. This is the lawyer I am. And I am motivated by social justice, by access to justice. Um, and, you know, for me, as I, as I said earlier on, it's not just about, you know, what lawyers do day to day, but how they do it and why they do it. And so in thinking about what these lawyers are motivated by, you know, and in terms of, again, we have to, you know, this is about how one constructs what, what one's motivation. So, you know, it's a field, it was a study of sociology and I, I had to often step back and remember that often how we construct who we are and what we do isn't actually what we do day to day. You know, sometimes there can, there's an obvious, dis, you know, um, separation between those two things. But how the lawyers in this study, how progressive lawyers um, describe and construct their own motivations are linked to their liberal political values. And those values underpin their professional lives. They, um, you know, across the board would, would tell me that they are not motivated by money. They Again, they construct their identity as not being motivated by money, but by a sense of, you know, what they might describe as a higher purpose of morality, ethics, social justice. Um, And linked to that, they have an idealistic vision, one might say, of how society should function, that vulnerable and disadvantaged people should achieve access to justice, and they're motivated to make sure that that can happen. Um, And those motivations... I find are collectively shared mm. that notwithstanding working in different practice sites in different places and using different tools, um, one can see a collective sense of identity and collective motivation for progressive lawyers in the UK. And I think that collectivity sets them apart from the rest of the profession. That's something that you talk to as well in your book about about how progressive lawyers do see themselves as as apart from from those who are more conventional or client-driven, perhaps. Yeah, and and that can be problematic, can't it? Like this idea that, you know, that a sense then that they might be perceived as thinking themselves to be more ethical or, you know, more aware of social justice than other lawyers. And of course, you know, and some of the literature and cause lawyering digs into this, doesn't it, that actually you know, we, we seek to create a divide between the traditional lawyer and the so-called cause lawyer. 
when in some ways they're you know they they're one and the same and and I do touch on that a little bit in in the book because um you know the notion of zealous advocacy so the traditional lawyer that advocates zealously on behalf of their clients to pursue their best interests regardless of the subject area you know the motivations are different but in some ways I guess that performance is the same so you can you can search for the similarities as well as the different differences regardless of the construction of this and one of the areas that um we've seen this play out very recently in the UK is relation in, is in relation to climate change where we've seen you know a number of um lawyers asking their colleagues to 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 not necessarily comply with what we call the cab rank rule where you sort of have to represent the next client that comes along you know to put a line in the sand and say where there are negative consequences for the work that you're doing you shouldn't do that work and that we need to own these moral and ethical decisions um, and so yeah I, I think there's still a lot of work to be done actually then in, in trying to interrogate these similarities between um, progressive lawyers as they identify in my study and other lawyers in other spaces you know who may present differently but some of the underlying ethical decision making may well be the same. And you've alluded there to some of the controversies that I wanted to talk about as far as progressive lawyers are concerned. You, know, you mentioned the cab rank principle, but in terms of how progressive lawyers might respond to challenges of professionalism, professional rules, neutrality, detachment, I wonder if you could say a few things about that as you discovered it in your uh, research. Yeah, and I'm sure you've come across this in your own work in the international space as well, Alex, in terms of um, how this notion of being a cause lawyer, um, so that's to say a lawyer that has a an underlying goal or an or an overarching cause in a case that, that is um you know often interrelated and linked to pursuing the ends of a of a of a client and, and getting the results for a client, but exists in a in an alternative space, I should say, of um, achieving a greater cause. Now of course our our professional rules, and again this is where the work in the UK needs to develop a little bit differently from the US because our ethical rules, especially the cab rank rule for barristers, are a little bit separate and distinct. Um, but you know where where the rules say actually you're independent and neutral, you're uh, you're there to advocate for your client's best interests and, and no more really. You know that your best interests are to that client and not to any greater cause. Obviously, there's a there's a, a quandary there, isn't there? And, you know, what I look at in the book, I suppose, again, because I'm so interested in this presentation of self and how lawyers themselves construct and identify and tell a story about that. You know, what I find is, you know, a lot of conflict in that space and tension between what lawyers are doing and what they say they're doing. And, um, you know, the question I ask every lawyer in the study is, you know, is there a time when you've represented the state or any arm of the state? And, you know, Many lawyers will, and barristers in particular, so solicitors obviously here, uh, aren't bound by the cab rank rule. Barristers or advocates, as we call them in Scotland, are. And they'll be at great pains, I think, to tell you, well, you know, it's it's just who instructs me. At least some will, you know, I, and I just, it, it just so happens that I've never been instructed by the government or I've never had to prosecute. So, um, you know, I, I don't really have an issue with that. Uh, others will be very bold and will say, I would reject those instructions. I've never accepted um, a case on behalf of, of the state. 
um, there's a wonderful podcast um, uh, in relation to feminist lawyering where a, a barrister from from the talks about her work in the 80s and 90s and said, you know, I, I made a clear decision that I would never represent represent um, a perpetrator of domestic violence. I would never represent um, anyone who had committed violence against children, for example. So clear decisions and choices being made, but a set of rules that obviously says those decisions and choices aren't necessarily ethically viable. And again, we've seen this a, a great deal in the UK, interestingly, in relation to Privy Council cases. So where the uh, here in the UK, barristers can represent um, uh, Caribbean states in particular, some of which still have um, uh, rules in relation to, example, um, gay marriage that we would not, you know, don't don't align with our own sort of values now, or, or how that our how those rules have progressed in the UK, I should say, and then lawyers being under fire for taking those cases and finding it hard, I think, to find a um, a story, a narrative that can help to explain those that decision if they themselves self-identify as a progressive. And of course, I just finished by saying that the narrative is that you separate out your professional and personal life. But I think in my study, what I find is that not all lawyers, even on the left, want to do that or do that in their practice. Mm, exactly, yeah. I said I'd come back to this idea of the collective. Um, and I want to talk about what you describe as this network-based theory of social movements and collective identity. And I wondered if you could explain a little more about why you feel networks are particularly important for progressive lawyers and how their collective identity is is manifested. Yeah, great, great question. And I think the starting point in terms of answering that was is to think a little bit about what I'd observed. You know, this is an ethnographic study um, and I observed in my own work that and my work in a, in a law school clinic, but working with charities, NGOs, law centres and you know lawyers across the, the five practice sites that I go on to identify in this study. And what I saw was uh, a richness of collaboration. Um, and I also saw and could identify these sort of rites of passage in the UK for progressive lawyers. So barristers, for example, um, of my generation would maybe have done um, an internship on death penalty cases in the US with reprieve. They would come back and might be involved in um, uh, legal aid practitioners group or the human rights um, uh, sort of associations that exist for law, you know, different groups and networks, not just professional networks, but also different, you know, personal ties that would help to maintain and sustain one's professional practice and then to see that play out particularly around sort of 2013 to 2015 in the field of strategic litigation so seeing this sort of frontline casework and that how that might inform and incentivize challenges through the courts in a strategic sense that might impact a broader group of people but rich collaboration between those frontline advisors and lawyers um, and lawyers working perhaps in, in NGOs and other organisations that could take those cases, observing that and, and I think wanting to capture it was, um, was was really what was behind the research. And so, you know, Mario, Di- Mario Diani's work um, sets out a really persuasive unifying theory 
for the developing theories around social movements that were coming through. I mean, his his piece, the the concept of a social movement, um, was written in the early nineteen nineties, and he really sought to bring together these different theories that had developed in relation to to social movements. But within that, he he looks at these networks of informal interaction. It's not just about organisations and structures and institutions, but these personal and professional ties, the network nodes that can exist to sustain a movement and its work. Um, And I I find that a really useful, you know, theoretical framework for analysing and understanding what these lawyers were doing. Because the other, you know, key components of Mario Gianni's definition are uh, shared beliefs and solidarity and collective action in relation to conflictual issues. And that, you know, that's that's what these lawyers across different network nodes and in different ways were doing, you know, taking action in relation to, in particular, a shared sense of injustice in relation to what they see they could see playing out in society day to day and wanting to pursue justice on behalf of communities, groups and individual clients in response to that. Great. Thanks for that. Yeah, they're all really important uh, discussions on on identity and on on collectives. I wanted to move back to something that you mentioned a few moments ago on in the importance of narratives or, or narrative for progressive lawyers. Um, you've already talked about your participants, but I wanted to ask you about your own research methodology and you've you've mentioned it already uh, ethnographic narrative ethnography and reflexivity and I wanted to ask um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your own uh, approach to to conducting research and how much of you you put into this work yeah I mean I think I think the the methodology itself demands a lot of yourself in it that one you know even in the most basic set laura's love telling stories right like the law itself you know as it plays out in the courtroom or in a written brief you know we're telling stories all the time um and in this research it's partly about you know listening to these stories but because that response of a shared you know the shared story the shared sort of interactions and engagement that facilitate that that storytelling i don't think um you know it's not pretending to be objective empirical research as i said this is to add something to that research in terms of um an objective approach to measuring different types of legal work you know this this um, work is is ethnographic there are elements of autoethnography here and one has to own the subjectivity that comes with that, but as a researcher, to be mindful of it. And I think what I try and do in the book is to to recognise it and to write about that subjectivity where it's relevant and to bring it in to sort of enhance the research process. But certainly as a starting point, you know, I, I identify as one of these lawyers. I'm, you know, a, a, a lawyer, as I've said, working clinical legal education in my consulting work. I work regularly with, um, you know, tenacious, brilliant lawyers in many types of, of social justice settings. And it would be it would be very difficult to take myself out of that process. Um, so what I try to do is to add myself to it, but in a way that um, adds to the research rather than detracts from it. I was really um, impacted by Molly Andrews' work at the beginning of sort of setting up the methodology for this study. And Molly's a narrative researcher 
who um, embedded herself in a, a group of sort of activists in the 1980s here in the UK. Uh, and in her book, she, she really analyzed, tries, you know, analyzes their stories and their commitments. But in reading her work, you know, I realized how much of her was in it, uh, you know, in that. And she's, she's you know, done a lot of other scholar, scholarly work in relation to that that really helped me to understand the potential, I think, for an ethnographic approach to research that also brings storytelling into the ethnography and analyzes, you know, in depth the stories of others to, to understand the sort of, as I've said, the cultural, political, social uh, and, and con- um, uh, presentation of self that's going on in different in different practice sites for lawyers in the UK. Great, thank you. Um, I wonder if we could turn to the 35 progressive lawyers that you spoke to for 35 lawyers in the UK. Uh, how did you select these individuals and their areas of practice and how did they themselves uh, self-identify? And a, a final part to the question is, I, I note that you call them participants rather than interviewees or subjects, which seem to be quite a deliberate choice. Yeah, absolutely, Alex. I think that relates to the last question, doesn't it, that I saw myself as a participant in the research in some ways. So they definitely weren't to me subjects. In fact, I'd feel quite uncomfortable about that because of the ethnographic element and because of the their willingness and their honesty, you know, in coming forward and sharing very personal stories. Um, that they were they were very much participating in a process together with me. Um, and so I, I, you know, to say a bit about how they were selected, the um the sampling in some ways I had to cover a lot of ground because I'd identified these five practice sites for progressive lawyers, which was in, you know, barrister campaigners working at the independent bar, law centre lawyers, charity and NGO lawyers, law school clinic lawyers, and then legal aid lawyers working in legal aid law firms. Um, and many of those lawyers were doing legal aid work regardless of the practice site that they were in. But I wanted to capture lawyers working across all five of those practice sites and I should say I did that not just through the, the, the participants themselves, but also in the ethnography in terms of um, uh, participant observation in other types of casework. So alongside representing those practice sites, the um, participants in the study also had to do at least two of four types of work. And that was legally a casework campaigning, policy advocacy or strategic litigation. Um, in fact, many participants had done more um, they had some had even done all four and the, their work kind of you know you could see the way that one very much complemented the other um, so I had a pilot phase where I'd selected I suppose lawyers that I knew in the you know the first two or three interviews and then after that it very much was you know your classic snowballing I, I mean I didn't go into an interview without someone telling me at least five times you know, during the many hours that we talked to each other, oh, you have to talk to this person. And, you know, this person had a real influence on my career and you must speak to them. And that happened a lot. And in in many ways, of course, that methodology reinforced itself because what you have are a group of people with a shared sense of collegiality, of camaraderie. And they're, you know, they're very good at sort of, um, how do I put it, of, of uh, supporting one another and advocating for one another. And so that became very apparent as I went through the process of selecting other lawyers for the study. 
It's obvious as well when you've spoken to all these people, issues of social class and shared values and, as you describe it, shared beginnings in law, shared turning points, I think is another expression you use, um, are, are really key for these types of practitioners. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you learn from your participants as as you acknowledge some of these issues, class, values, beginnings and yeah. turning points. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting because, you know, there'd be so many times in the interview process where, you you know, you would, it would be hard, you know, talk about this, this subjectivity of this, because it's, it's often hard to hold back because so much of it feels familiar. And, you know, if I take the shared turning point as an example, um, almost all lawyers in this study, in fact, all of them would, would talk about the time they turned from corporate law from an alternative version of their professional life and for some that for some that comes before they've even gone to study law they know why they're going to why they want to become a lawyer and they won't be deterred from the path of uh, progressive lawyering in future but for many you know some had gone to corporate legal practice and then turned away from that and I I always talk about this turn because that's how they described it. And the law is a very interesting profession in that sense. I don't think there are many professions quite like it where you can you start law school, certainly here in the UK, and you're often on a treadmill, you're on a path towards a certain type of practice. Uh, you know, whether whether you are not, in fact, that's how you perceive it. And you, you, you do have to quite, at least how all of these lawyers describe it, you have to take a purposeful turn away from that and to turn towards, you know, an alternative version, you know, to the extent that even in some more recent work that I'm doing in the legal aid space, you know, even still we hear legal, you know, junior, junior legal aid lawyers coming into the profession and telling story after story of how their lecturers, their parents, different people telling them, you know, don't, do not do legal aid, you know, it, to, to make that turn is is quite difficult. And so, um, you know, ha- being in these interviews and, and, and hearing time and time again these sort of recurring themes about shared turning points, as well as when you pick up the um, you pick up the point about class background. Um, and, and of course, you know, more recently, and I, again, I've been doing some work in the anti, anti-racist lawyering space where we're seeing this come out that, your own experience of an injustice influencing the work that you do in future and taking that with you. Um, so if you you know you experience racism early on in your life, <clears throat> and then you want in your career you want to develop a career where you're challenging discrimination, you're challenging racism, and um, using the law as a tool. And there were lawyers in the study who had experienced homelessness, who had been evicted as, at a young age from their homes, asylum, you know, members of asylum seeking families, um, families, you know, on the on the breadline, so to speak, or using food banks and needing the welfare state and needing welfare entitlement um, to uh, to have an adequate standard of living. And then their story, their construction of what they do is, you know, the law was so important to getting the entitlements we were owed by the state. I have dedicated my life to making sure that others can get that. Um, And then I think, you know, one of the things in that chapter where I talk about the shared um, beginnings are that even where, so for more privileged lawyers who maybe haven't had that experience, I think it's quite interesting that they still seek to acknowledge it in their own stories. So I give a few examples where lawyers will say, you know, that 
that wasn't my experience, but you know, it, I, I really value that. And I am, you know, I'm so pleased that some of my contemporaries and my colleagues bring that experience into their practice. And so almost a kind of an understanding of, of, of needing to acknowledge that and, you know, essentially needing representation in the, in the profession. Now, obviously, both of us work in UK law schools. We are teaching the lawyers of tomorrow. We've already alluded to it in your last answer. In the book, you talk about how it's important that, and I'm going to quote you here, we, quote, create opportunities for students to glimpse all possible future selves, as well as habits of responding to social injustice. I wonder if you could talk a bit about what you mean by creating these different opportunities for students to glimpse all different possible future selves for future versions of their self that they might imagine. Yeah, and again, I think it comes back to that sense of frustration and urgency for wanting to do the study that, you know, I believe strongly and I experience day to day as an educator that students need to be able to accept or reject a version of their their possible future selves. And, and some of that is about testing out a version of oneself. Um, I was really drawn in the early stages of this study by a book called Pass to Fulfillment by Ruth Ellen Josselson in the US. And it's all about women's search for meaning and identity. It's a longitudinal study where she traces women's identity um, over many decades and really seeks to sort of challenge this simplistic generality, generalising that we have of, of identity for women in particular, and to look at how they champion different versions of themselves and the complexity of that. And in that book, she talks about how in legal in education, and for us in, in legal education, you know, often education is a, is a moratorium on identity. It's a time when society allows you the space to test out who you want to be. I mean, nobody's going to judge you when you're when you're critically thinking and interrogating and trying to understand new things, if you're testing out new versions of of what you want to be and how you're going to live your life. And so for me, I see clinical legal education as a version of that, that if students come and they experience law and practice, but they experience perhaps, you know, acting on behalf of a client in a welfare benefits case or um, different aspects of social justice legal work and decide, well, that's not for me. You know, many of my students have done that. They've gone on to, ha- you know, quite high flying or all different types of careers, uh, many in corporate law, but they do so with an understanding of social justice legal work. They've had enough of a grinding to, to decide whether to accept or reject it. Um, and so for me, that bringing this study into legal education is about saying, this is a ver- these are versions of, 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 of individuals, you know, these are people who've pursued a career and that might be open to you and you might decide to, to walk this path or you might decide to walk another. But if you don't know, if you don't have that option, I think we've failed as educators. I think we haven't done a good job. And in my more recent book with some colleagues, which is a, a, a workforce survey of legal aid lawyers here, uh, in England and Wales, you know, that's one of the things we find that, you know, the majority of students are still saying, I wasn't given the opportunity to learn about legal aid practice. This wasn't available to me. And again, I think that's a real failure and it's a failure that could have devastating consequences for the future. Uh, throughout this book, you've mentioned some of the 
ethical challenges that progressive lawyers face as legal professionals. We've talked about um, the cab rank rule particularly, but I wonder if the, if it's possible to to sort of go beyond that. Is it possible for progressive lawyers to engage with the more conventional lawyers to get them on side with what they're doing, even though perhaps conventional or corporate lawyers may not have the same core motivations as progressive lawyers? Do you think there is a way that the the ethical challenges that, that progressive lawyers face can be negotiated in a way by engaging with people who are not them, in inverted commas? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I suppose what you're alluding to is a consequence of this study, isn't it? That if we have a progressive lawyering social movement, a movement of lawyers that, that, that ha, you know, differentiate themselves, you know, what are, what are the negative consequences of that? And I, I think there are a few. The first is the one you've alluded to, that there's a divide then between corporate legal practice and here in the UK, legal aid practice, I would say in particular, um, that divide is ever deepening because of this, the salary divide. You know, we have the highest salaries that we've ever had for corporate legal practice, partly because of US law firms coming in and disrupting that space a little bit and salaries becoming higher and inflated in one sense. So, you know, the, 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 the salaries available to social justice practitioners are, are are considerably less to those in the corporate legal space. And of course, that in itself differentiates the types of work that they're doing and maybe, you know, can can dig, can, can, can cause different sides to kind of even move further into their own corners. And all these, you know, many of the other themes I explore in relation to motivation, in relation to ethics and the tools that one uses, um, can also serve to to differentiate lawyers, but I, you know, I think you're absolutely right that in crisis times, in particular, it's all the more important that we find ways to collaborate and connect and to to to, to cross those divides. Um, you might have noticed I don't include pro bono as a sampling in this uh, in the sampling of the book, in that um, most lawyers are doing pro bono in relation to their to their work in fact and this is in the findings of my more recent book that's due to be published in the summer but we know that legal aid lawyers engage in high levels of unpaid labor but it's not conceptualized or understood as pro bono because it's just part of the job and so there are lawyers i'm sure in court in and i should make this clear there are of course lawyers in the corporate legal sector who may who would who would fit the sampling to the extent that they may be engaging either through their pro bono work or perhaps with other tools, but um with with progressive legal practice. Um and I do note that in the book that those lawyers may well exist. But I think there are still questions about the identity of those lawyers and whether they're perceived by other progressive lawyers to be within their own, you know, network of practice. Um, but I think the, you know, we, the, the other unintended consequence, maybe, so we've talked about this divide between corporate lawyers and needing to perhaps reach across that. And as I've alluded to as well, I think one way of doing that is to better educate all lawyers so that regardless of what area of practice you go into, you at least know that legal aid exists and you know that this other type of legal, of legal practice exists. Sadly, you know, there are a lot of lawyers going to our magic circle and silver circle firms who, who don't have that understanding and awareness at all. Um, my second point, though, is another maybe consequence of consequence of this is 
uh, of a finding of a strong sense of identity is the danger of lawyer-led approaches that don't adequately take account of other social movements and communities in in, in the, the, the approaches that they take. So I, you know, I'm alluding to community and movement lawyering. Um, and certainly, again, that's some other work that I've been developing recently because I think it is a consequence of this work, that it's not to say that because we have a social movement and a collective identity of lawyers, that they somehow, you know, have are, are privileged. And in fact, the opposite is true. We need to always look at the ways in which lawyers need to deprivilege themselves to work with communities and movements to achieve their goals and their outcomes and not the lawyers' goals. Um, so, yeah, I think in answer to your question, there are a number of ways in which lawyers themselves can work to ensure um, that they can kind of tackle the unintended consequences of their own sort of strong sense of collective identity. Maybe let's get a, even a bit more technical here. Uh, we, we've mentioned the expression, the tools for change, the tools that, that have been used, but I don't think we've, as yet in our conversation, fleshed out what what, what you mean by that. Um, I wonder if you could talk us through those. You mentioned legal advice, representation, strategic litigation, policy working, campaigning. Tell us a bit about how those different tools that are used by progressive lawyers have influenced the way they practice and the results that they get as well. Yeah. So, as I said, the sampling itself is, you know, that lawyers themselves have to use some of these tools. So engaging in a campaign, using um, one's, you know, evidence that one might have gathered to influence policy change. But certainly what we see in this space is the you know, strong connections between all of these tools. Um, that's really apparent in the strategic litigation space. I suppose it's most obvious there because you're often relying on the the wider cultural space, even media communications um, and campaigning around an issue whilst also moving and mobilising that issue, perhaps through the, the courts. At least that's what many lawyers working in the strategic litigation space could be doing. Even if they're not doing it themselves, they're relying on others that are performing that function, perhaps. Um, that's particularly important in what we call the legacy phase of litigation. So um, to embed a decision and to make sure that it's successful, there's actually a lot of work to be done after a court decision. And it can take sometimes you know, up to a decade or more to really create the change from a court's decision. But for many, you know, that it, and, and I certainly don't mean to sort of set strategic lit- litigation up on any sort of, of, of pedestal. And sadly, the literature has, I think, in, in some jurisdictions sought to do that. Um, and that can be be problematic. You know, we have all of the, the myth of rights work in the US that's very good at articulating the negative and unintended consequences of turning to litigation over other strategies. Um, and in fact, what lawyers, and because I'm really seeking to holistically and collectively look at all of these lawyers, you know, frontline legal advice and representation as a tool to create change, you know, making sure the client that has been evicted has access to good housing, um, you know, outcomes for immigration um, clients in terms of leave to remain, but whatever it might be for children and young people, those in the criminal justice space, you know, good defence, whatever tool one is using, it could be a more traditional and a, a neater understanding of, you know, this client, this case, this outcome in legal terms, but often in and around that, there are, um, you know, other tools being used, especially to influence decision makers, to influence, 
you know, whether that's the local authority that's allocating the housing in the first place or central government creating the policy about the allocation of whatever entitlement it might be. There's all sorts of work going on in and around the, you know, the sort of traditional conceptualization of one client, one case, one outcome that helps us to really understand the richness of progressive legal practice day to day. I wanted to return to something we talked about earlier on about professional legal ethics. And do you identify three different groups in uh, among the progressive lawyers you interviewed, the resolute, the constrained and the conflicted? And you've alluded to one or two of those briefly. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what you mean by these three different categories and how they how they conceive of their uh, or perform their uh, professional legal ethics. Yeah. So and I think performance is a really good sort of word to use here because um in the interview process it 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 did feel like um you know not just a construction of one's identity and the um and the ethical choice one makes but a justification for that and sometimes that does feel and we all do it that we're performing that justification a little bit in terms of trying to line up what we say we do and what we do so yeah, the resolute group of interview participants would be very plain and clear about their ethical choices, um, resolute in their decision making. You know, I this is what I do. You know, I will never represent any arm of the state. You know, I will never um, represent the police, for example, I'm, or whoever it might be. Uh, I'm very clear in my understanding of who I am and the work I do, unapologetic. And even if one digs in a little bit, and I I actually had in my in my fieldwork notes for this, um, in my sort of reflections, whole, uh, you know, long kind of pages around the discomfort of these interviews, right? That I actually call it the on. I think I allude to this in the chapter, the uncomfortable positions, because they're taking a position. I'm taking. You're trying to navigate this sort of. Well, that's what you do, but the rule says this. You know what? And digging into that in a way that is incre- can be incredibly uncomfortable. But regardless of that sort of discomfort or or probing gently and in the conversation you know those resolute players will will keep to the resolute position um you know the those who are discomfortable so they will you know they'll take the position but you can tell they're not comfortable with it they're they're more comfortable with not representing the state or the particular actor they don't want to represent than having to represent them. So they choose not to, but they know it doesn't comply with the rules and they're not comfortable about it. And they're not quite, you know, they, they acknowledge that discomfort. The third group of people are back and forth and very conflicted. <laughs> so on one view, they'll say, oh, no, I never, I never, ever, um, you know, I always ensure I follow the cab rank rule or as a solicitor, I'm always independent and I always make sure I, I follow the rules. But again, when then digging into it, they'll realise themselves that actually they're in conflict with that rule. So what we can see are very different approaches to trying to engage with one's own ethical decision making. And, you know, perhaps that, and John Flood and others, I think, have tried to allude to this over many years, that these, you know, the cab rank rule in particular is held as being so sacred and important to ensure representation for those who need it um, on the one hand, whilst on the other, you know, many barristers are in conflict with it. They find reasons to not represent the people they don't have to or don't want to represent, but articulating that and, and describing that and justifying that is, is understandably difficult. 
In the last couple of chapters of your book, you deal with two very important questions insofar as progressive lawyering is concerned. Uh, the first one is something that we're returning to from the very beginning of our discussion. What sustains legal professionals through the challenges of burnout that you mentioned, of lack of funding? And the second issue is what is the future of progressive lawyering? So I'd like, to, if you can, to talk to both of those issues. So first of all, what do you think sustains these type of legal professionals throughout all of the challenges that they face? Yeah, I mean, my finding in this book is that the shared sense of identity and a shared vision um, and even the shared action that, that they take is sustaining those lawyers. That That's not to say they're not experiencing considerable challenge. Um, and in one chapter of the book, I go into sort of the lack of resource, but different types of resource, not just financial resource, but other resources that mean that it's difficult to do this work. But what you know what is so clear in talking and working day to day with progressive lawyers is that their commitment um what what drew them to legal practice in this area in in the first place is what it continues to sustain them day to day and that commitment is strongly held and strongly felt um so that you know for many lawyers those that, that have stayed and of course many many other others have, have left and been un, unable to sort of um, uh, to keep going and what has been especially in recent years an incredibly challenging time for pursuing this work but certainly this sense that the work is important and I value the importance of the substance of this work um, is what sustains lawyers day to day and I think as I try to make clear in interrogating many of the stories, you can see that you can see lawyer they 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 turn in their narratives back to this sense of camaraderie. I am supported by my colleagues, I am supported by my own networks, and that will keep me going. Um, but that's hard. It, it you know that that actually it, given the structural institutional. Um, you know, and other challenges right now, it's a lot to expect lawyers to rely solely on that to keep going. And we need change, you know, we need resource, we need structural change in the system, I think, to support these lawyers for the future, and especially to ensure that new lawyers want to come through and do this work. There are areas of the UK advice where we have advice deserts and droughts, where there just are not lawyers coming through in certain areas of law. Um, and so part of that, I think, as I've said, is our job to expose students to these possibilities to say this work exists. But also we need jobs and we need resource behind those jobs um, for students to be able to, to, to actually take up those opportunities in future. So it's edu- education, it's funding, it's resources, it's opportunities, I yeah, guess. And I think it's also, you know, for me and what I argue in the book, and it comes up in our, again, in the, the new book that I've co-authored with, with colleagues around legal aid and sustaining legal aid and, and in some wider work I've done. And, I mean, to be honest, I've been probably banging on about it for years, but I do think intergenerational mentorship and exchange is so important that sharing the stories of those that have come before is so incredibly, you know, important for sustaining and inspiring those who are coming behind. And you know, more than ever in the media space at the minute, I've been thinking we see it's almost like, you know, certain corners of, of the media 
want to create more of a divide between the baby boomers and the millennials and Gen Z and everything else coming after. We're, we're looking at all the differences. And of course, there are many. And, you know, lawyers graduating, coming into the profession now, face unprecedented challenges in terms of cost of living and housing and everything else. But at the same time, in terms of um, dealing with, for example, vulnerable and traumatised clients, dealing with one's own sort of vicarious trauma, you know, other anxieties in relation to the work, practitioners over many decades have, uh, you know, overcome and endured and found ways to, 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 to think creatively and carefully about how to do that work to meet the needs of one's clients, but also to protect oneself and to think about how to engage, you know, work, love, care. You know, a lot of this work on identity and professional life that has informed my study is about the the interconnection between one's professional and personal life. And I think intergenerational mentorship and exchange of ideas across, you know, different generations can help us to sustain communities of practice for the future. Well, that's an excellent point to to finish on, Jackie. We've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but I have one last question. Um, I think you've you've already answered it partly. What are you working on right now? Now, perhaps that's different from the book that that's coming out um, later on this year. But perhaps you could talk a bit more about that new book that's just about to be published. Yeah, of course. So that's with my colleagues Katrina Denver, uh, Dan Newman and Jess Mant. And we conducted a large scale survey of legal aid lawyers in England and Wales in 2021. And the academic monograph for that study is due out in a couple of weeks, actually, with Heart. It's called Legal Aid and the Future of Access to Justice. Um, and it, you know, it draws on a lot of similar themes that I you know, touch on in my book in terms of the pressures and challenges for legal aid practice but tries to think about sort of the future. How do we sustain, you know, notwithstanding those pressures and challenges, how do we sustain the profession in future and gives a lot of empirical data on, you know, a large, a, a large representative sample of, of legal aid lawyers. Um, the other work I'm doing around sort of at the early stages of exploring does touch on what I described as a consequence of this study that you know if if lawyers are themselves a movement well, what does that say about how lawyers work with other movements and again it comes from I suppose this frustration of well why in other jurisdictions have we got all this well-developed work on on community and movement lawyering and uh, and little here in the UK so I'm really interested to be to be looking at um, developing a, an evidence base for movement lawyering here in the UK because it exists and it's happening but you know to think a bit more about where and how and why um, and then finally I suppose in my you know my day-to-day work as I've said um, you know my my first love in a way is, is clinical legal education and the day-to-day you know practice of law school clinics and I've just set up with colleagues at the University of Glasgow at the Emma Rich Law Clinic which is providing representation to those who've survived sexual violence um, and we're alongside providing independent legal representation we're measuring the impact of that representation to try and create new models in Scotland and elsewhere in the future. Those all sound like fantastic projects perhaps we can have you back to talk about them when you've got some more time. Thanks so I much. Love to, Alex. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show today I really enjoyed our conversation take care Jackie.